Blog Talk Radio. Today on the Hardwood Huddle, head coach Larry Brown, legendary head coach Larry Brown, talks with Bill and I. Let's get the show started. Welcome to another edition of the Hardwood Huddle. My name is Randy Delia, coming to you from the swamps of New Jersey, just right outside the former Izod Center at MetLife Stadium. Uh, joining me as always, I, I hope we have him here, our good friend, our Jedi leader, Mr. Bill Ingram. Bill, are you with us? Okay, it seems like we have a, a disconnection of of Bill here. I don't know what happened with Bill, but that's okay. We have a very, very special guest with us today. We have the I one and only. You can't hear me. Oh, there you are, Bill. There you are. Okay, good. You are here. I was trying yeah. to. For some reason, to <laughs> I hear think you. I exist. <laughs> yes, yes. The, the, the Jedi, the Jedi Knight, is with us. The the King of Hoops. He is our 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 uh, our, our Texas basketball insider. He is the one and only Bill Ingram. And Bill, we have a special guest today. This is this is like, uh, and this is one that I've been looking forward to because this next guest has forgotten more basketball than I'll ever know. I was going to say of all my. Nicknames that you give me every week. I don't think King of Basketball works this week when we're talking to Larry Brown. I just no, I, exactly. Well, I can't. And, and the funny, I can't wear that one. No, no. no I was about to say I, it's one of those ones I wish I could take back because Larry is obviously the king. You know, M- NBA champion, uh, champion coach. You know, such such success uh, with the, with the Pacers, with the Knicks, with the Seventy Sixers, uh, with the Pistons. Of course, championship. Larry has done it all, and he's nice enough to give us some time this morning. Coach, thank you for joining us. Randy Zellia, Bill Ingram, Hardwood Hall, thanks for giving us a few minutes this morning. Uh, glad to have something to do and talk about something I love. But I, when you <laughs> mentioned success with the Knicks, I think you made a mistake. <laughs> well, was, you, didn't go, you didn't go 0-82. So, uh, you know, well, you know, that's what let's let's take some let's take what we can get <laughs> right right so poor Randy's up there in a place where you almost have to be a, a, a Knicks fan and I mean that's got to be one of the more challenging things granted he claims the Nets first but uh at least in <laughs> Texas we I have some teams around me that have either are good right now or have been good in recent history <laughs> well it was uh 
I've been a, I was a Knicks fan when I was a little boy. Um, I used to go to the garden when you could spend 60 cents and sit upstairs and watch games. And, and then growing up in Long Beach, um, a lot of the Knicks lived um, in Long Beach during the season. And I used to play with Red Holtzman on, on the playground. He taught me how to play when I was a young boy amongst <laughs> some other people. So that experience I had with the Knicks, just saying you the Knicks coach was something special. I wish I would have been able to do a better job. Well, Coach, I, I have to say because uh, I grew up a Nets fan, and I know you know back in the early days of your coaching time you were with the Nets when before they were evolved by the Meadowlands. And one of the most famous games, and it's, I told Bill this is one of the things I was definitely going to talk with you about, because um, I was working with the Nets the first time I met you uh, back in the 03 season, 03-04 season, when the, the Nets and the, and the Pistons played in that epic playoff series, including the triple overtime game in Detroit. Um, around that point, did you sort of feel that was one of those full circle things? Here you are, you used to be a coach for the Nets, and then all of a sudden you're against them in the playoffs in such a classic form, being down 3-2 and helping the Pistons get over that hump at that point during that championship run. Well, um, I love the time I coached the Nets. Uh, you know, they went from Piscataway to the Brendan Byrne Arena, and I worked for Joe Taub, who's unbelievable owner. And uh, we ended up actually making the playoffs both years. I, I think they won like 21 or 23 games the year before, but I love that. But then um, when you talk about the 2003-2004 season, the Nets were great. Um, you know, Jason Kidd was as good a player as there was in the league, and Kenyon Martin, they they, they had a really deep, terrific team uh, and I remember Rashid after we lost the triple overtime game you know even though Chauncey made an amazing shot to send it into overtime Rashid guaranteed we'd win um, <laughs> game six and you know I love Rashid but sometimes when you're a coach and that comes out it's, you kind of scratch your head and wonder how you're going to deal with that but uh, we got off to a horrible start, one game six, and then kind of dominated game seven and lucky enough to play great against the Lakers, you know, in the finals. Is that uh, a, it, was, it was an amazing You know, it's a double-edged sword to have that kind of a – to have one of your star players make a statement like that. It, it gives the other team, of course, bulletin board <laughs> inspiration, but – so fired up uh, your team because to go ahead and do that with maybe a little bit of extra pressure from Rashid's prediction, I thought that was, I thought that was gutsy. Just, I knew Rashid Wallace a long time from Portland everywhere, talked to him a, a lot. And I thought, wow, that's, that's a gutsy thing to say in that moment. Well, if you, you dealt with him in Portland, but you know, you always hear stories about Rashid and what kind of guy he was, but he was beloved by all his teammates and and also beloved, I think, by everyone that ever coached him. You know, I I begged Detroit to get him because he was a North Carolina guy. I know 
I knew him for a long time. I knew the relationship that Coach Smith had with him. Um, but I think you're probably right when Rasheed guaranteed, you know, we were going to win the game, that the respect the players had for him in, the, in our locker room was the one that probably challenged us all to do better. Um, he did that actually after we lost game five um, the following year in the finals to San Antonio and won game six at San Antonio when it was 2-3-2, two, two, um, which is a really difficult, you know, way to run the finals. But we he guaranteed us that game as well, and we won. But Rashida, probably as good a teammate as you, I've ever been around. Hey, Coach, I, I, you know, you, like you said before, you've been around some great players like Rashid. Uh, a couple of years ago, ESPN aired a special about the Reggie Miller versus the Knicks, the, uh, the, you know, that, that great documentary which you were a part of. What are some of your memories about coaching Reggie Miller, especially during that time against the New York Knicks, and, and just him, what kind of competitor he was, um, especially since we saw about great athletes finding ways to get themselves up and to be in, get into that zone. What are your memories of Reggie Miller? Well, he played 17 years in the league for the same team. I think he was drafted 13th, and everybody was mad at Donnie Walsh because they didn't draft Steve Alford, you know, at that time. Um, he probably – Charles Barkley and Reggie, I think, scored as many points taking the fewest number of shots of any of the great players. Um and Reggie wasn't great by accident. He he worked at it. And uh, the bigger the moment, the more he was challenged by it and excited to accept that challenge. Uh, you know, it's funny. Uh, twice a year I get called by at least 25 reporters. Um, it's the anniversary of Allen's, you know, famous press conference about practice. <laughs> and then it's the anniversary of Reggie scoring eight points in 8.9 seconds, you know, against the Knicks. Um, but the thing I remember most is, one, the respect I had for Coach Riley. Um, you know, when he went from Showtime in L.A. to coach a real physical half-court kind of tough team in New York was incredible to see that change. Um, and then when you look back at the teams, you don't see any young players playing. And the game was really basketball. You you could really put a hand on a guy. The game was physical. There were no layups taken without a hard foul. Um, even though the, the players, you know, went after each other um, in such a physical way, there was a mutual respect. So, it was unbelievable being part of that. Um, but I laugh about, you know, people remember Reggie scoring eight points in eight seconds. But um, he hits a three to tie it uh, with 18 seconds to go. We steal the ball. Um, I think Anthony threw it, you know, inbounds or Mason. I'm not sure. Reggie runs behind the three, hits another three. We tie it up, and Sam Mitchell doesn't realize that the score is tied, and he fouls. 
Um, and then John John Stocks goes to the free throw line, a great free throw shooter, a clutch player. He misses both free throws. Um, Patrick misses his shot. We get a rebound, and Reggie gets fouled. And we end up winning the game. And there were so many crazy things that happened in that game. But when you think about a player in a in an environment like that to score eight points under those circumstances tells you a little bit about how good this guy was. Um, I actually coached his last game um, that he played in Indiana. We uh, we were Detroit. We beat them game six at Indiana, year 17. He got 27 in that game. Um, he was remarkable, and I think he's a great – he does a great job on, you know, doing the color in games. Um, he's so positive about the league and about the game. It's, it's kind of fun for me to listen to him. You mentioned uh, the change in the game. You're talking about my – I grew up as a kid watching Akeem Olajuwon. I grew up in Houston uh, a large part of my childhood when Akeem was playing at U of H and then with the Rockets. And to me, I mean, you've seen – ABA basketball, no three-point line, NBA, college, uh, the Olympics. You know, you found success at all these different levels. Do you have a favorite era of basketball, whether it's the no three-drag-out uh, 80s era or the, I don't know what you call now, the run-and-gun uh, era of little defense? <laughs> What's your favorite period in basketball? Well, I, I don't call this game run and gun, and I, I really do think they try to guard, but I don't like the game at all. Uh, um, you know, when you look out now during this pandemic, which is so unfortunate, I see so many old games. Um, I see the Lakers playing Boston. I see Philly. I see Detroit. Um Portland, you know, you see Houston when Akeem was there. Um, I was taught that you try to get a great shot every trip down. You try to get fouled if you can. You try to get a high percentage shot. You share the ball. And then if you miss, you got a chance to rebound, at least to get back on defense. Um, and, And then you don't play unless you're ready to play. So you don't see any young players playing. You don't see 19-year-old kids unless they're a LeBron or a Durant. Um, Kareem went four years to school. Bill Russell went four years to school. Larry Bird, I think, went five. Michael went three. Um, I don't get this idea about developmental coaches. Um, I think we don't have enough people teaching these kids how to play. They're much more athletic. Um, and the great ones are truly, truly great. They would be great in any era. But you used to earn the right to play, and when you did get the chance to play, you were prepared to play and make a difference and make a contribution. So when you talk about eras, um, I, I love the game so much, uh, but I, I, I think I love when Russell and Chamberlain and you can every every team had a great center. 
People forget that Bill Russell and Chamberlain probably played against each other 15 times a year. Um, you know, when you were in Houston covering Elijah Wan, who I don't know many players fundamentally on the off- on the block that were any more gifted than this guy. But I remember when I was in San Antonio, when David Robinson played against Akeem, it was the most fun of any game I ever got to coach because they went after each other in such a way. They both were great defenders. They both could score the ball. They both competed like crazy. You ended up sitting on the bench watching them like a fan. Um, and it was it was something that was would blow my mind because they would do something in a game that you would look at your bench and look at the coaches that were with you. Maybe you only had two. We didn't have 20 coaches. And then you would say, did you just see what those two guys just did? And it would blow me away. Well, we had Cedric Maxwell on the show last week, and he, of course, played against and with the team, played with him briefly in Houston. Uh, and he said, we were talking about the, the Bulls documentary, and he said he would take Akeem over Jordan. He'd take Akeem over anybody because of the fact that Akeem did everything on both ends of the floor. And I was asked to speak to a, a middle school basketball team a couple of years ago here in Dallas. And I took tape. I took a, uh, well, it's not tape anymore. I took a, a YouTube video of Akeem's highlights because their coaches were worried about defense, that everybody wants to be Steph Curry now and just shoot threes, even my guys that should be in the paint. I said, okay. So I asked these kids, you know, how many of you have heard of Akeem Olajuwon? I'm sure if we were in Houston, a lot more hands would have gone up. But these kids, none of them knew who he was. So I played a five or ten minute, that was about five minute clip of just some of his great all were, you know, rolling on the floor. Oh, you know, it's like this is the way the NBA used to be. I mean, Akeem's jumping up three feet above the rim to block shots. Like, and and I'm with you on the on the David Robinson matchups. Those were epic. Uh, I still have a clipping from the Houston Chronicle from the Western Conference Finals of the year. David won MVP, so 95, but Hakeem, but the Rockets won the, the West and, and won the championship. And it's a play where Hakeem had done 15 different drop steps and dream shakes and pivots and ultimately dunked the ball, and David Robinson's on his hands and knees behind him looking up in this shot, you know. And I just thought, man, I'm with you. This, watching the modern NBA, I've, I've been courtside at a lot of games uh, in the last, you know, 10, 15 years where I just, it's like, okay, what happened to, what happened to defense? What happened to contact? What happened to rivalries? You know, these, what these guys play? What happened, weren't, what happened to post play? Yeah. Oh, that's post play. So many things that, that I loved about the game that watching it now, it just isn't quite, I just feel like it's not quite basketball. <laughs> well, um, and I don't want to, I'm not trying to be bitter or anything. I, you know, I, I'm just so blessed that I've coached my whole life, but I played for Dean Smith, Frank McGuire, Alex Hannum, John McClendon, Mr. Iba, you know, Pete Newell. Um, I can go on and on. I coached with some of the greatest coaches and I got to coach some of the greatest players. Um, when we worked out and when we practiced, it was all basketball specific drills. Now all you see 
are these developmental coaches. We're doing all these drills where they dribble two balls and a tennis ball and so many of the drills are shooting. And when you talk about post play, I was brought up that you took the highest percentage shot, a shot that you can make, a shot you can get fouled, a shot you could get an offensive rebound. And if all of those things failed, a shot that enabled you to get back on defense to stop the break. People now don't even understand what I'd be talking about if I said that. You know, now they talk about running people off the three-point line. You know, and everybody's talking about I'm, – I'm, I might be getting ahead of myself. People might under, not understand what I'm talking about. But they, they talk about closeout. You know, have you heard the term run them off the line or a closeout? And every time I go to a practice, one, you know, people ask me to go and kind of critique or, or give them advice, but I'm the one that always learns, and I, I appreciate that. And I'm very careful whenever I offer information. But they all eventually will say, Coach, you got any ideas? I say, well, instead of spending all the time working on these you know, these drills you're doing, why don't you teach fundamentals? And instead of worrying about closeouts, teach a guy to keep somebody in front of them so you won't have to close out. And then I I respect the analytics guys. I I did analytics when I was 14. Um, I knew a good shot, bad shot. You had to get to the free throw line more than your opponent, out-rebound them, especially on the defensive board. But if you get offensive rebounds, be great. Take care of the ball and put a team in foul trouble because they're not going to guard as as well. And if you have a bad night shooting, the fact that you can guard and rebound, you can win a game anyway. So I'm always careful in what I say when they ask me these questions. But I – I never believe you should do a drill with your team unless it's basketball specific, if it's something that you value. And if you value it and you expect it to be done every single night to give yourself a chance to win, you should do it every single day. And then my last thing is we we got these 19-year-old kids playing, and they come out of high school they go one year of college, and really in February, they're already out of there. And then they're put on an NBA team. They go to an NBA team. The best young ones usually go to an NBA team that has a losing record. And there's a reason why they might have lost. Maybe there's a bad team. Maybe it's a bad locker room. Maybe there's bad coaching or management. I don't know. But the older ones go to the good teams that have all great values and they get to play when they're ready to play. Not that they're given the opportunity to play because they were drafted early. And that, that really troubles me um, because my greatest fear as a coach is ever putting somebody in a game where he wasn't prepared to play at his best and to, you know, be aware of a, situation that might occur that he was prepared to handle that we went over it in practice um 
and I, I'm troubled, and now I'm troubled, and I, I'm, I'm sorry I'm speaking so quick, so much. But the NBA now has a, a deal where they're going out and recruiting high school kids to go to play in the G League. Yeah. And I think that's the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard in my life because not everybody makes the NBA. And if you go to college, it's the best minor league system there is in the world. You get an education. You have to be on time. You're held accountable if you screw up. You're being taught every single day. Um, you're in an environment with kids that you never, may never ever have been in an environment, you know, again or before. And 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 we're just telling these kids don't go on to college. Now I want them all to make money, but people don't realize what a college education does for you and how much money this education a college kid is, the, the value of that. You know, having medical care, eating three meals a day, you know, getting the opportunity to go to class, being around really bright kids, being with the greatest coaches ever. So why don't we draft them at a, you know, at a high school if we want or in college and let them stay there? You know, Larry Bird stayed there, didn't hurt his career. Kareem went four years. Bill Russell went four years. Michael went three years. How many years did Akeem go? You know, David yeah, Robinson went, went four, four years. You know, what's yeah. wrong with that? Um, and, I, you know, I don't, I don't get it. Uh, I'm troubled by it. It also makes the NBA draft a real uh, crapshoot. And we've done some breakdowns of, of some of the great drafts uh, on our show. And the more recent drafts, I mean – you're drafting somebody 19, 20 years old or, and maybe somebody who's never played the college game at all. And you're asking them to step into not just the, I mean, the level of play uh, on, in the NBA, but the, the culture that you have to adjust to. And, you know, David Morway and I used to talk about this all the time when he was the general manager in Indiana, because uh, we both uh, believe in the same thing, which is you have to build the culture and then you have to pick guys who will thrive in that culture. You have to build people as well as teams. And when you're drafting young kids, like you said, on the teams that are lottery, you know, the lottery teams by definition, how do you expect a team like, and hey, right, one of your teams, Charlotte, is a team that is perpetually struggling to find a lot of, a lot of teams in the league that just are stuck in that phase of drafting young kids, watching them not become, you know, you're drafting a top five pick, hoping three years from now he's an impact player. Where when I was a kid, you drafted a top five pick, you were immediate, you were going to be in the playoffs. Like it was, it was a game changer for your team. And I think that, that makes it really challenging. But I'll say this, one of the things you said, uh, Jerry Sloan, of course, sadly we lost him recently, but this is something he said so many times. Uh, when we talked to him before and after games, was shots are fleeting. You may hit your shots, you may be off, you know, on a given night. But if you play hard defense every possession, you will win regardless of whether you can't control whether your shots drop, but you can control your effort on the defensive end. And I think that I just, of all the things I learned from him, that right there is something that's really stuck with me. 
Well, every day that I played for Coach Smith and then after that I coached, I wrote on the board, play hard because coaches shouldn't have to coach effort. So that's a value system when you draft a kid. Play smart, be unselfish, and have fun. And then I asked Coach Smith, would you mind if I wrote it be nice if we rebounded and defended? <laughs> and he laughed and he said, he said, of course. And, you know, I always found out the kids that you didn't ha- that had a motor that were willing to defend were usually the most unselfish and easily easiest guys to coach and gave you a chance to win. And I used to tell my college teams and pro teams, when we can win a game shooting 38%, and maybe 65% from the free throw line, that should define our team because you show them right then and there. Sometimes the ball's not going into the in the basket, like you said, but if your effort on the defensive end and on the board and you're unselfish and you play hard, you're going to win more more times than not. And, and that should be a staple for everybody. But, but it, the thing that blows me away, is I'll get a call because, you know, I've been around and seeing a lot of kids play AAU ball, so people are asking me what I think of some of these young prospects. And I'll give them my opinion about them, but I'll say, you know, maybe this kid that went four years to schools a little better, and they'll all tell me, well, his upside is not going to be as great. And I can't understand that because you, we're talking about David and Kareem and Larry Bird and Michael and people that have went four years or three years to college and have really done pretty darn good. Um, and, it's again, it's no knock. LeBron should be able to come out. Durant should be able to come out. But if they're not ready to come out, and you think they have a future, yeah, draft them. Because when we draft them now, you draft a European player, you let them stay in Europe, right? Why can't you draft a kid (laughs) in college and let them stay in college? And when you feel it's the right time, then you bring them to your team. Where the pressure on him to change your team around immediately is not so great. He's got this great coaching he has a chance to get his degree and be around some really, really bright people that may change his life and impact his life. It makes sense to me. And the last thing, 174 kids last year put their name in the draft and didn't get drafted and weren't allowed to go back to college. Now, that's a crime. You know, what, what, what are we doing to these kids? Because some agent or somebody that, you know, just got involved in his life told him, hey, you're going to be an NBA player. Everybody loves you. You're going to get drafted. You know, put your name in. And all of a sudden, it doesn't work out that way. And now what is the alternative? It's it's to go into G League and play against older guys, which is a guards league, and really not get to experience 
what he would get going to college and maybe even getting a degree, which would be an amazing thing in, in itself. Hey, well, Coach, I, you I talk about to... upside. Well, okay, Randy, you got it. Go ahead. Sorry, sorry, sorry about that, but Coach. I, I just wanted to no, piggyback okay. off of that. The, the last, the last uh, senior that was taken in the top five of the NBA of the NBA draft was back in 2006. Um, I've always been saying that it's unfair for the NBA coaching community right now to draft a lot of these kids who are only a year out of college because not only are are the coaches coaching to not only save their job and try to win games, compete for championships, but now the same thing, the same coaches are now trying to have to teach the game in that sense, where college has always been a job training type of situation. You don't see lawyers or accountants coming out early to go into their field. I feel like the college game would benefit so many more players and also weed out some of the, what we like to call the draft busts in that situation. Well, you know, people say golfers and tennis players and and musicians can come out early. So I, these protégés, like we would, we all know, yeah, I understand them coming out early, but I agree with you. I, um, I I remember, I don't know, you might be talking about Shane Battier um, in 2006. I don't, I'm, I'm way ahead of myself. But I remember when Shane was coming out, he spent four years at Duke. A lot of people called me and said, you know, this guy doesn't have an upside. Well, shoot, he played for a great coach. I think they won a national championship. He did all the little things that you would want your team to have. You know, a guy that defends, that doesn't need to take 20 shots, that moves the ball, that does exactly what the coach asks every single minute of every game. I said, those guys are vital. And and, and, and the, last, the thing that even makes me go crazy is if you keep these young kids in college, you open up more opportunities for NBA players to prolong their career. There's no negative in in my mind, um, unless you're just saying all the college coaches are terrible, which I don't buy. <laughs> I think most of them are great, um, and, and you know, and I and I think now when you get them when they're so young. Um, the, the, my high school coach was a big part of my life. I lost my dad when I was young. So all my coaches were like father figures to me. If I ever went home and complained to my mom that my coach got on my ass or yelled at me, my mom or my uncle or my brother would get all over me and say, no, no, Larry, the reason he's on you, it's not criticism. He's coaching you. He cares about you. He loves you. He wants you to do better. These young kids now that are coming into the NBA, a coach might have the greatest effect with them when he's with them on the court and he's being taught by this coach. But once he leaves with all this social media and all these people around him that really want something from him, they're not telling him the right things. Um, And a lot of these is the reason that we say they failed. They really hadn't failed. The system failed them. Um, and I, and, and that, that bothers me because if you bring, and, I, and I'm not pointing out certain teams, but, you know, and being unfair about this, but if, if you put a guy, 
you know, on a team like San Antonio when they had Tim Duncan and David Robinson and Ginobili and Parker and a coaching staff like that, a young kid, and he's surrounded by people like that. When he gets the opportunity to play, he's going to have so much more respect for the game and be so far ahead of the game because he played for great coaches and was surrounded by great players. That's why I love the last stamp um, because, you know, people assume Michael was great because he was gifted and everything. You know, talent's a gift from God. Character's a choice. You know, Michael Jordan was the greatest because not only was he a great player, he was the greatest competitor, and he prepared to play. And every time he stepped out on the court, he felt the responsibility to help his team win. And the people that came to see him play, he felt the responsibility to give them their very best because it may be the only time they'll ever watch him play. So when you mention Kareem and David and um, Elijah and people like that, I think they all had that. So when you had uh, a couple of young guys on your coaching staff a few years ago <laughs> by the name of Greg Popovich and uh, RC, what did you see in them something that you would imagine that decades later they would be responsible for one of the greatest uh, eras of, I mean, we've talked, (laughs) it took a, a pandemic to stop the Spurs from getting to the playoffs, but to see that team be so good for so long under the leadership of two guys that you really brought into the world of pro basketball. Well, um, you know, everybody said coaches have trees. I had a forest. You know, when I was at – when Pop <laughs> was with me and R.C., you know, I had Billy Baino, John Robick, who's assistant at Kentucky, Baino's in the NBA. Um, I had John Calipari. I had Bob Hill. I had Ed Manning. I had Alvin Gentry. I had Greg Popovich. I had Bill Self. R.C. was lost. You know, R.C. had no clue. You know, he went to A&M and then transferred to Oklahoma State. I inherited him as a GM, but he was just a, a hungry kid that wanted to learn. Pop took a sabbatical and stayed with me um, when he was coaching Pomona Pitzer. Um, and uh, I could never have predicted you know, the success they had. No, Nobody could, but they were both great people and both inquisitive and both treated people with unbelievable respect. And, and Pop's background was so much like mine. Pop went to the academy and played for Bob Spear. Um, Bob Spear, you know, Coach Smith's first post- coaching job was the, Bob Spear's assistant. Um, at the Air Force Academy. So there was a connection right there. Matter of fact, a little-known fact, I, I cut Pop. He tried out for the Denver Nuggets, and I cut him. <laughs> and then I was helping Mr. Iba with the 72 Olympic team, you know, at the qualifying. And Pop tried out for the Olympic team and got cut, and he really had – he should have made it or had a chance to make it. Um but but their values, to me, was so special. 
And when you watch the Spurs play and everybody who ever plays for the Spurs, um, the values that those players have and the respect they have for the game is incredible. And then the last thing, and this is, you know, Pop ended up his first coaching gig was David Robinson and Tim Duncan on the same team, um, which which was a pretty good start. But I've been around Pop a lot, and I've been around RC a lot. Uh, not a day goes by that Pop doesn't try to get better. And Pop's never afraid to surround himself with people that have different ideas about the game but have a, a lot of values that he believes in. And uh, he, it's, it's a wonderful thing to think about. You know what? Um, I hear people talk about the great teams. You, you very rarely hear them talk about San Antonio during this pandemic right now. Um, you know, they're talking about Boston. You know, they're talking about the Lakers. They're talking about the bad boys. Um, you know, it's it's you don't even hear a lot really talking about Houston's back to back as much as as we probably should. But um, I I didn't know, you know, nobody could predict, you know, what they've accomplished. But I know all the guys in my life that I've sat next to um, have helped me so much, you know, do the things that I really want have been able to do. Um, And that's what I'm most proud of. When I look around the league and I look in college and I see guys that have helped me in my life um, and I see the success they're having and the impact they're having on the game, that's the greatest, you know, reward you can have. Uh, The Popovich instituted when the G League came about was the – the Austin Toros, now the Austin Spurs, ran the same system, the same coaching system that the Spurs were running so that if they had to call someone up, they weren't getting a player who didn't know what to do. They were getting a player, granted a young player, but someone who had been playing in the same system at least. So if they came up and got called to San Antonio, they kind of already knew what to expect and where to be and what, where to go. And, and I've, I see now the, the Dallas uh, the Texas legends are doing the same thing. Uh, and a lot of teams are starting to figure out what to do with their G league teams as a result of the fact that Popovich uh, had the coaching staff in Austin running the same uh, drills and the same programs and the same plays that the Spurs were running. Well, I've, I've, I've said that that's the biggest benefit of the G league aside from developing coaches. Um, and, uh, you know, I have a kid named Shake Milton who's playing for Philly, played with me at SMU. He plays two games some night. He plays a G League game in Delaware and then goes over to Philly and plays in Philly. When I was a coach, my biggest fear, you know, I love practice. Uh, you know, my teams practiced all the time. You can ask the Detroit guys, the year we won it, we didn't have days off. I, did, I don't understand about managing players because if I had to manage some players and told them they weren't going to play, they'd have, they'd have killed me. They'd have mutiny, <laughs> had mutiny. But I, I tried with our players. You know, we didn't have the G League at the time the way it is now. 
But if a guy played a lot of minutes in a game, I would hope that I would be sensitive to them when we would have practice the next day. But I never was sensitive to any of the kids that didn't play. And we had a full practice, just like a college practice, because my biggest fear was when we would ask him to play and to put him in a situation because we had an injury or an illness or something like that, that they wouldn't be prepared to play at the level we expected them to play at. So we used to practice full practices for guys that didn't play major minutes. And I used to have guys when we were on the road would beat on my door and say, Coach, let's find the gym and have a practice because, you know, I want to be ready when you ask me to play. And that that I thought was great. And that's why I, I got excited about the G League until this last thing about, you know, getting kids not to go to college because you can develop a coaching staff. And when a kid comes up from the Toros or the Legends, they've been coached in the same kind of system. So when they come up on a 10-day, they're not just there, not understanding what you're trying to do. and what. So when you do ask them to play, they have no idea how they can play at the level they need to be playing at. So it's a great thing. I think all but one or two teams now have their own minor league team. And and I think that's going to be real helpful. Um, and the the way you can bring them back and forth, I think, is is a really really good thing. But again, you know, I I'd love to see us keep the kids in college and be able to draft them while they're there. And when you think they're ready, then bring them up. Um, I, I I think that would be so much a more healthy situation because like. How many teams do we see now draft European players and keep them over in Europe? Yeah, exactly. And if you can do that because you think they're going to get better, they're going to be well coached, they're going to mature physically, mentally, whatever, and be able to handle some of the things they're going to encounter in the NBA, what's the difference by keeping a kid at North Carolina or you know, Kansas or wherever, an extra year or two, and then bring him up. I'm, I guarantee you he'll be better prepared to to play the NBA game and handle all the things that are going to be thrown at him. Draft and stash. That's what they call it, right? <laughs> yeah. Hey, Coach, I, I have to ask, too, you mentioned that you have watched the, uh, the Last Dance documentary before. Uh, what was – what was your take on the 10-part documentary? And did it also bring up a lot of uh, memories of, of not only Michael, but of uh, great players it was through that time frame? Well, um, I loved it because I think kids needed, just like we were talking about Elijah one, nobody, you know, even understands who the hell Elijah one is. Um, I loved it because, there were so many great players during that era and Michael had to go through seven years of hell to get to the point where they could win a championship. And it showed, you know, how dedicated he was to winning, how demanding he was on his teammates and how demanding he was on himself. Uh, 
You know, I remember I coached Byron Scott um, in Indiana, and Byron told me one day, he said, Coach, you know, when I was with the Lakers, if we won the championship, I think they won four when he was there, we would take two weeks off, and then Magic and Worthy and Kareem, they'd all have us in the gym working on our game. And I said, well, what happened if you didn't win? He said, the next weekend we were there working out. Um, and and I think that just showed to me the the unbelievable work ethic. And then when you see the bad boys, and you know when we were talking about defense, they won with unbelievable defense and unbelievable toughness. Um, when you talked about Riley's, you know you see Riley's how he evolved. You see him with the Lakers. You know, and then all of a sudden you see him with the lit mix and you can't understand if that's the same coach. But to me, the last dance should show kids if you want to be great at something or good at something, uh, it's not luck. You just got to work at it. And you got to make a commitment to do something. And then if you're a great player and you know yourself, that you go out every single night and try your darndest to win and you come to every practice working as hard as you can to prepare to win, you can demand anything from your teammates. But if you're just somebody that shows up and tells everybody how to play, you know, you're not going to get any respect. So I love the fact that, you know, we saw the greatest or as good as any player we've ever seen play and understood that he didn't make his varsity team until his junior year. Um, He wasn't the most highly recruited guy until he went to Carolina's summer camp his senior year in high school. And it took him a long time to win an NBA championship. And he did come back. You know, people talk about all these records. Michael went three years to college, retired for two. So he actually missed five years. And can you imagine what he might have accomplished, you know, if he'd have played those five years? Uh, I don't know. Pretty remarkable. Something keeps, and I'm going to ask this question because half of my family are all North Carolina uh, people. We're in Raleigh, North Carolina. Charlotte, Raleigh, Winston-Salem, Burnsville, oh, Carolina. Wow. Something keeps drawing you back. <laughs> and I did a lot of Bobcats games and uh, and Hornets games both just because I could uh, expense a trip to North Carolina and do a homestand and see all my family. So, uh, But what is it about North Carolina that keeps taking you back? Oh, and even Davidson College where you – almost coached my mom taught there did nursing classes there where and steph curry went there so you know you've got a, yeah, lasted, a lot of touch points lasted, in north carolina i lasted six weeks there and went back <laughs> to play in the aba but um but one my high school coach went to carolina and frank mcguire recruited my mother and she made me go to north carolina which was unbelievable she wanted me out of the city because she she worked um, and at that time, you know, the New York City had really great college ball. They played in the Garden. They had NYU. 
you know, St. John's, Manhattan, Fordham, they were all really good teams. But my mom wanted me out of the city. Um, I went to Carolina. Coach McGuire recruited so many kids from New York. Um, It was a great school academically. Not that I cared. All I really cared about was playing. And, uh, you know, I was lucky enough to go to a great school, and my coaches made me try to, you know, get a degree and work at, at that part of it. But I got to play for two of the greatest coaches of all time by accident. You know, going there for Coach McGuire, ending up with Coach Smith. Coach Smith even brought me back to coach with him and became an unbelievable mentor for me. And then when you consider, you know, you having Carolina roots, at one time North Carolina, North Carolina State, Wake Forest, and Duke were all within 30 miles of one another. And the ACC originally, those eight teams were just remarkable. And, you know, when I went there, I didn't even realize the ACC wasn't integrated. Um, I just, you know, thought it was a place my mom wanted me to go. She loved the coaching staff. She loved the school. Um, And I was fortunate enough to be with Coach Smith when we recruited Charles Scott, you know, who really was the first, you know, black athlete to play in the ACC south of the Mason-Dixon line. There was one kid in Maryland, I think, by the name of Jones that played at Maryland was – recruited in the ACC but you know coach Smith at the time when he took over the scandal had broken so he was really limited in the number of players he could recruit the areas we could recruit in and his first five years were not that easy and then he ends up and we could arguably say that maybe the greatest coach of all time Um, but but it was so unique for me to be there and have the opportunity to recruit Charles because I had no idea we weren't integrated. Didn't even enter my mind. Um, and Charlie, you know, and Charlie told me one time when I was I was a freshman coach, which was great. You know, you coach the freshman team and also be an assistant varsity coach. Charles told me he he felt more pressure from his friends that went to the historical black colleges than he did from the players in the ACC because he thought his buddies that played for the historical black colleges thought the ACC and the SEC stunk because they weren't integrated. Uh, it was pretty pretty amazing to hear Charles talk about that. I've, I've maintained here in this recent uh, this stuff that's going on now that Sports should be or could be an example of how we move past racism. It doesn't matter if, if the best guy to help your team is a seven foot four Chinese guy or if it's a black guy or a white guy or somebody from Serbia or somebody from Hungary or, you know, the NBA in particular, I've, other sports too, I'm sure, but I've, I've lived NBA my whole career. Uh, you have the best player that you can get to help your team. And it doesn't matter what their nationality or their religion or, you know, and none of that stuff uh, gets cast aside. 
And uh, granted, I I was raised in a family that didn't color wasn't an issue. And in Houston, uh, I was in a school predominantly black, and I worshipped Akeem Olajuwon. So, <laughs> you know, I come from a, a a background that's disinclined to notice color anyway. But I think when we look at that, um, I had a, a girl I dated in college who was her dad was just ridiculously racist, cheered on the Blazers and couldn't stop yelling Clyde Drexler's name and. And I kept thinking, man, how do you, how do you not, how do you live with that that sort of division? Uh, because sports is holding this up as an example that hey, everybody has gifts and talents, and it uh, doesn't matter, nothing else matters, just your your talent and ability. And I think um, for me, I think sports is a great way to, to something to look at to help us as a society move past some of these barriers that seem to still be uh, knocking us down uh, off of the sports arena. Well, I'm glad you said that because I've been on so many talk shows and, and I, I've said similar things. You know, when I, if you go to a playground and you see four and five year old kids playing, they don't know any difference. Um, They have to be taught the difference. Somebody yep. has to, in their home, talk about hatred or or device being divisive. When you talked just before about athletics bringing things together, I I know every team I ever coached, um, the players would look at each other and say, "Is this guy a decent guy? Does he love his teammates, and can he play?" Those were the things that mattered. It didn't matter, like you said, where he came from, how he was brought up, you know, the color of his skin, you know, his religion or anything. It was, was he a decent guy? Did he care about his teammates? And can he help us win? And that's the way we should all be looking at life. Yeah, things are really unfair. I see it all the time. Uh I grew up, my greatest hero was Jackie Robinson. I used to walk pigeon-toed because of him. Um, and and I, I couldn't wait to get up in the morning and get the paper to see how many hits he got. Um, and, and I loved the Dodgers because they, you know, they integrated, you know, as quickly as they possibly could. Uh, and, and it was a team that, You know, if you grew up in Brooklyn, you know, it was a hodgepodge of everybody. My cousin ran the Bronzeville Boys Club in Bedford-Stuyvesant in Brooklyn, which was predominantly black. Um, Every Friday night that I wasn't playing, Saturday and Sunday, he'd drive me to Brooklyn, and I'd play against these kids that were so much better than me. And their schools were, you know, integrated. You know, I grew up in a school that was, you know, predominantly Jewish. There were hardly any kids of color in my school. So for me to go to Brooklyn every weekend and play against kids that were so much better than me from different backgrounds was one of the greatest experiences of my life. Um and and you're right. I, I I think if we could learn to to be like what a sports team is like, and 
and the values the sports team brings and respect one another, we'd be way way ahead. Uh, we still got a long way to go, but you're right about athletics. It does a lot to bring people together. Hey, Coach, uh, this would be my last question. Um, as far as from your time in the NBA, and we were talking about coming into the league, uh, you know, not even – for going college, you know, not only being for one year. Look, there's, there, there was not many LeBrons. There were a lot more Kwame Browns um, in those types of situations. Guys like Kobe and Kevin, Kevin uh, Garnett took a few years to find their footing in the league before they started being able to control the, uh, control the, the, the tempo of the game. What is your best advice to young players these days as far as, you know, for them having that little gleam in their eye of wanting to just make that jump, what's the best advice that you can give them? Well, one, you know, we have the best minor league system going with college. Um, And whenever you're going to start out and want to be great or want to be good at successful at something, you want to make sure you're, you're prepared when you do it. Um, uh, there's no doubt in my mind, Kobe and, and Garnett uh, and LeBron, people like that, they, they have every right to come out. Um, the NBA, they should, you know, they do, I know, have a group of 20, I think, that tells the kid where they're going to be drafted. And if they're going to go in the first round, Coach Smith, if you were going to be a lottery pick, he made you leave because he wanted you to start earning money quicker and be ready for your second contract sooner. But but my advice would be never leave early unless you're ready to play. And I, I mean, and not only ready to play, but to be able to handle all the things that are going to be thrown at you and the expect expectations people are going to have for you because, and, and people are going to get mad at me and I'm not, I'm not bitter about this, but we're not teaching these kids the fundamentals in a lot of ways that are going to enable them to be successful, all of them. And, and by going to college, you know, and being around, you know, great coaches and, and players that are there for different reasons, when you do get the chance to play in the league, you're going to be more successful. And you, you just said it, look, LeBron, I, you know, he came in and did pretty darn good right from the beginning. But how many guys are 6'8 and 260 and athletic like that at 18? It's, um, You know, Kobe did all right. I think he averaged about 15. It took Kevin a little bit longer. But, you know, they benefited by coming out early. But we can make a case for so many guys that really didn't. And then we can make an unbelievable case if you go back over the history of the game for the guys that stayed and went four years to school. And when they did get the chance to play, how well prepared they were. Um, So my advice would be, you know, don't come out for the money because the money gets, it's gone before you know it, you know, if you stay in college, you'll probably figure out how to save your money 
and the value of the dollar you earn. Um, but I, I worry about it. When I was growing up, the high school coach was the one that, you know, told the family what was best for your son when it came to basketball. Now the high school coach is completely out of the equation. And it's different people that are giving kids different reasons for leaving, whether it's an AAU coach or an agent or a street guy. And sometimes then their best interest is really not about you. Now, I've seen a lot of unbelievable great AAU coaches that have really helped these kids. But I think the longer you stay in school and the longer you – if you do stay in school for a long time, the chances of you wanting to get a degree are far greater, and there's a lot of life after basketball. So if you're not lucky to make – lucky enough to make it in the league, the people you come in contact in college and the education you get is going to help prepare you for later on when your career is over. So stay as long as you can, and when you know you're ready, then come on out, and then you'll probably have an unbelievable career. That's your mic right there. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm a college yeah. professor as well, and that's <laughs> that's exactly what we tell them. You better stick in school because <laughs> that's going to last your lifetime for sure. But, yeah. Coach, thank but you so much uh, for your time. We really appreciate you coming on. Uh, this is great. I hope I didn't say things that were out of line or hurt people's oh, not feelings. But, no, absolutely but I not. care I, I can tell how much you guys care about the game and care about the kids. And, you know, I feel the same way. You know, I I love it. It's allowed me to do things I never even imagined I would be able to do. And I want to see it grow and get better. And guys like you help that. So thank you so much. Wow. Uh, thank you. Thank you for that compliment, Coach. And, Coach, well, we'll be in contact, and I hope you, uh, you know, keep yourself busy. Obviously, a lot of basketball still on, uh, still on TV right now, or, or going to be on TV. Um, you know, obviously, there's going to be an announcement today that the NBA is going to be coming back, and uh, well, hopefully, when we get started again, we'll give you a shot. We can break down some of these games. Yeah, when you see my teams play, you know, back from years ago, don't get mad at me because sometimes I say, "Who the hell would have hired that guy?" <laughs> we appreciate it, Coach. We appreciate it so much. All right, guys. Thank you. Take care. Okay. Bye. Bye. Well, we um we went over time, Bill, but it was definitely worth it. So people will be able to hear this on the back end, and uh, I I don't think you can uh, put a put a, uh, a price on the 90 minutes we just spent with uh, Coach Brown. Um, one of our one of our best episodes will be up uh, later on today. Also, Cedric Maxwell right now. The that interview is located for all of our uh, followers on YouTube.com as well as SoundCloud. It'll be posted back on the site. For some reason it didn't click, so we just got it up there now. And this will be up later on today. Bill, let's let's just quickly digest uh, some of the things that Coach was talking about. You know, he just he he's a wealth of knowledge. Like I said, it's one of those ones where I can just sort of sit back and just listen. Yeah. 
yeah, he would apologize for speaking for so long. And I'm like, nope, just go ahead. Keep going. Uh, <laughs> no, just go, Especially man. Just go so many of the things that you and I have talked about is what he's talking about. The one thing I just absolutely love, and I don't know why we don't do this, is draft and stash in the, in the college system. Because teams are always drafting international players and saying they're going to, but he's going to stay, you know, for a couple of years in Serbia or Italy or, you know, wherever. Uh, and why don't, why don't we do that in the college system? Because when you talk about upside, the reason the players have so much upside as a 19 year old is because you don't know if they're going to be good or not. I'd rather have a Shane Battier who you know what he is. He arrives as an incredible defender, an incredible teammate, uh, extremely high basketball IQ. Does he have a lot of upside from that? No, but hell, I'll take that. Thank you. Um, and I think that's, yeah, well, the, that's the biggest That's what you, the, the biggest that's what thing, you and I have been you know? saying. That's what you and I have been saying. Yeah. And, you know, the, the simple fact that matter, and Larry just texted me now saying, thank you so much. That was, 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 was an absolute pleasure call anytime. So, so when we get back Wonderful. and we get we to the playoffs, I think we know we know we know who we're breaking down with. Um, so, yeah. um, so Bill, let's let everybody know where they can find us. Um, go ahead. I'll, I'll always start with you because you are the supreme leader. <laughs> so you can find me on Twitter at the Rocket Guy. When I write about basketball, it's on BackSportsPage.com. When I write about anything else, I have my blog at IshmaelsLegacy.com, and I always tweet out. These shows and anything else I do, you can find it on Twitter at the Rocket Guy. Yeah, and uh, we're all very excited. Uh, tr- our own Tracy Graven will be covering the uh, NBA announcement later on today about the return, and uh, we have some more exciting guests coming this uh, this up in the next couple of weeks. And you, obviously, you can follow me with Off Topic and Back Sports Page. Uh, I'll be back later on a video video show for Off Topic later on today. Uh, so you know, keep an eye on that uh, at Randy BSP on Instagram and on Twitter. So Bill, we'll we'll do this again next week, and we'll just keep keep these keep these hits going. Absolutely, sounds like a plan, my friend. All right, Bill. Thank you very much, guys. We'll see you all next week. Thank you.